To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a scary movie victim. Oh no, a tree fell on my car, and there's only one thing to do. Trip over my own feet and pull myself across the lawn while yelling help at a barely audible volume. <laughs> uh, sorry to interrupt, but you filed a claim with GEICO, so you've got a designated claims team to help you. This GEICO sounds suspiciously reassuring. Are you sure I don't end up getting surprised with an unexpected twist? Just that your GEICO team will always be there to keep you updated. No! What is it? Oh, nothing. I just didn't see that coming. GEICO. Great service. Without all the drama. What a matchup! And what a team, Mike! Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS and an unlimited LTE plan and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. I feel like we're Wayne and Garth on the on the recreation Welcome of their public access set. <laughs> starring Mark Radlich. Also starring Sean Comer. You ready, Hollywood? Because you're on trial. All rise. Court is now in session. The Honorable Judge Fudge presiding. This is on trial. And I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radelich. And tonight, I take the role of prosecutor as we end a week dedicated... It's really only two shows. It's just two shows out of four. Well, we'll call it a week. A week dedicated to the Death Wish franchise tonight we put death wish the original 1974 feature film on trial and here to defend this orgy of violence captured on film the one the only the twitchy the gaming he sean you're not mr sean comer how do you do sir well now that you just stole my shtick you schmuck (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, see you. You, you at uh, least, at, you least, I, perfect... at least now I know you watch my stream. <laughs> you, no, I, I, I just know you stream on Twitch, so I called you Twitchy. Get it? That's and then you could have just, you could have just, just barreled in there, like, like that's right, I am Sean and you're not. You just reaffirm, oh, yeah. sir. Reaffirm. Well, yeah, the, yeah. The, the way I always, the way I always start my stream, it stream is. <clears throat> Good evening, my jet bears. I'm Sean. You're not. Welcome to another chapter of the Comer Codex. Ah, okay. <laughs> so what's fun about this show is the first time we are recording on trial on Spreaker, on the Rattle mm-hmm. Broadcasting Network, on Spreaker. And um, as I was explaining to Sean, I'll show you a little bit how the sausage is made. The way the Spreaker setup works is he can't hear the sound that I play and proceeded to talk over the, uh, the intro music. That's fun. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know, you didn't explain that part to me. Otherwise, I would have shut up. I counted you down. You're like, <laughs> this is like Wayne's World. And there, I, and I don't know if you heard me banging my head into the desk. But... No, you didn't. 
No, you see, the only other time I time I have done this. No, there was no part where I had to wait through intro music. Um, let's see when uh, when I first started podcasting occasionally with Jeremy Lambert, mm-hmm. he would count in, wait a beat, and then go right into his intro. Um, when I do podcasts with Stuart, I don't know if it's a if it's a thing that's on. Um, uh, uh, whatever audio suite it is he's mm-hmm. recording and, ed- and editing with, but there's like uh, uh, three knocks, like some, like something on wood, and then Stuart goes right into it. I don't, I don't have an intro music that I have to sit there. You didn't tell me you were actually going to play the intro. I thought you were just going to tack it on at the start in post. Nope, I don't do nothing in post. I post in post. That's what I do. God damn it, Mark. <laughs> Uh, it wouldn't be a Rattledge and Broadcasting production. Rattledge. It wouldn't be a Rattledge and Broadcasting Network production without some sort of silly screw up. But at least it's not Block Talk Radio. All right. Let's- yes. <laughs> so hey, fuck small favors. Yes. Uh, so I did see the new Death Wish. I have watched the old Death Wish. We are going to prosecute uh, and defend said Death Wish tonight. Let's get into it. Uh, Sean, what are your notes for this 1974 orgy of violence? Well, Judgy Fudgy, uh, this film directed by Michael Winner and starring the late, great Charles Bronson is based uh, somewhat on a 1972 novel of the same name written by Brian Garfield. Um, The thing about it is, on the one hand, the source material uh, was a treatise against vigilantism. The film tends to kind of sort of embrace it in its own way. Um, it, it very much stands by setting, uh, setting no limits, drawing no line when it comes to punishing criminals. And that's one of the reasons why it did so well at the box office. Uh, made on a budget of $3 million, made $22 million, and it's still regarded today as a modern kind of hard-boiled classic of the early to mid-70s. And that's because, at the time, the United States was dealing with crime in major metropolitan areas across the country just going straight through the roof. It was getting out of hands, out of, out of hand. And keep in mind, this was also about 10 years before Bernie Getz kind of became the face of very real-life vigilantism. It's also somewhat notable in that it features the uh, early appearances of some eventually pretty well-traveled and and well-known actors. Uh, veteran character performer Robert Miano uh, played a minor role as a mugger. John Hertzfeld uh, played the mugger responsible for responsible who kind of eggs on uh, our hero Paul Kersey by slicing his newspaper on the subway. Uh, eventual Welcome Back Cotter star Lawrence Hilton Jacobs was uncredited, but he played one of the Central Park muggers that you see near the end of the story. Um, actress Helen Mirren has a has a rather minor role, and this was before she would eventually appear on Good Times and 227. 
if you ever watched Sesame Street, Maria is in this movie. Yeah, uh, Sonia Manzano is uncredited as a supermarket checkout clerk. Uh, Christopher Guest plays a young police officer who comes across Kersey's firearm. And most notably, uh, a uh, um, youngish uh, Jeff uh, Goldblum plays one of the uh, one of the hoods who assaults Kersey's family early on, which of course is the act that eventually sends him just spiraling right on downward. Otherwise, we've got a <laughs> phenomenally good. Uh, soundtrack composed by Grammy Award winning jazz artist Herbie Hancock uh, which was his third score after also doing 1996's Blow Up and 1973's The Spook Who Sat By The Door uh, what else it actually, was, it actually wasn't received that well when it first came out in fact the reviews ranged from mixed at best to out and out negative at worst, but it became the catalyst for a well, what is now kind of, kind of an unsettlingly timely debate about how to deal with rampant crime. Um, yet at the same time, critics were really put off by how exploitative they found. Uh, the, the the chilling rape scene of Kersey's daughter and then subsequently uh, Kersey's own premeditated murders. However, they kind of had to concede that it it was somewhat real somewhat realistic. It it wasn't at all implausible given the state of society. Uh, despite the fact that many critics considered considered it an out and out an out and out threat to public decency because they felt that it encouraged antisocial behavior, which is a point of view that I don't know that I necessarily entirely agree with, but mostly. I, I think there are other ways to look at it, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Um, we always seem to come across Roger Ebert's reviews of just about any movie that we do, um, he didn't agree completely with its philosophy himself, much like me, but overall, he gave, he gave it a positive. The, as for the original novelist himself, he, he was really displeased with how inflammatory the final film was. He, he had absolutely no love lost whatsoever for what he considered... Um, pretty much pointless sequels. I think that's a viewpoint most audiences would agree with. And the way they did out and out advocate, advocate for vigilantism. Um, however, they did put the idea in his head to write a follow-up to Death Wish and its sequel called Death Sentence, uh, which came out about a year after the film, after the film came out. And as for as for its iconic star itself, uh, Charles Bronson was was pleased with it. He saw it as a as a commentary on the violent state of humanity and as an indirect attack on violence, not a romanticization of it. Um, and 
uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and be obvious. Uh, it was nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills. Paul Kersey was nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. And it's it's pretty much regarded as a modern classic, not just in its era, but overall. So much so that you can you can see and hear it referenced everywhere today from The Simpsons, American Dad, and Spider-Man to uh, <laughs> uh, the Opie and Anthony show repeatedly using the clip of Jeff Gold- Goldblum yelling, Goddamn rich cunt. <laughs> and and uh, works by a number of hip-hop artists. Oh, and also it's referenced in both 2013's Payday 2 as one of the game the game's difficulty levels and a whole separate mission on Hotline Miami 2 Wrong Number, which is simply called Death Wish. And that's your quick and dirty rundown of the cultural significance of one of my favoritest movies ever. Ooh, we get to poke holes in your sacred cow, your your, your Zampats. That's going to be fun. All the right. fuck I do? I'm defending this. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I ain't poking holes in shit. No, I said I get to poke. I get to poke. Um, all right. So the plot's pretty pretty simple. Um, Sean actually covered a lot of the plot points in his notes. But essentially, we meet Paul Kersey and his wife. Um, we get to spend some time with them before Jeff Goldblum leaves a trio of muggers into their apartment, proceeds to beat her to death, and rape his daughter. Um, he is of the liberal bent, uh, not a fan of guns, but after a trip to Tucson, Arizona, uh, he is slowly but surely wooed in the ways of arming oneself and protecting uh, protecting oneself and their family with a gun. Um, when he gets home, he actually finds a gun that was given to him by uh, said Arizonian that was left in his luggage. So back in Manhattan, um, things only get worse for Paul. Uh, he finds out that the daughter is, is severely depressed, nay catatonic, from the trauma of the assault, uh, and they have to commit her to a mental hospital. Um, Paul starts walking around with the gun. Uh, he's mugged. He shoots the mugger and runs home to vomit. Again, he starts walking through the city, uh, this time on the lookout for violent criminals, and he starts shooting them. And rinse, repeat, until he starts to catch the, the eyes and ears of the local New York City Police Department. And an investigation begins with this vigilante killer. Uh, he starts to earn some notoriety, which is embarrassing for the police department. And ultimately, at the end of the movie, while he never actually finds or shoots the uh, initial muggers, he does run afoul of some other random ones. And one gets a good shot in, and he ends up in the hospital, where he is confronted by the lead detective, who basically says, look, we found your gun. And you've become somewhat of a folk hero and an embarrassment for, for, this, uh, for this police precinct. How about this? You vow to leave New York quietly and I'll go throw your gun in the river. Which he does. He moves to Chicago, uh, unpunished for his sins, as it were. 
And at the very end of the movie, we have some hooligans in the, uh, I believe it's O'Hare Airport, who are hooliganing about. And he makes a, I'm going to shoot you with my finger, I'm going to shoot you, uh, finger gesture. And that's how the movie ends. I'll say, sorry, it's Union Station in Chicago, not O'Hare Airport. Whatever. Um, so... The, that, that's the quick and dirty on the plot synopsis. As you know, if you've been listening to the show lately, I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time on this part. Sean actually brought up uh, a, the central thesis of my argument against this movie in his notes. This was written at a t- you know at, at the during the malaise of the seventies. This was a. I put this. This was a feature in which the writers consciously took the psychology of the time, the fear of uh, of our cities that were drowning in crime, and the continued uh, fear, paranoia that things were only going to get worse. Remember, we're, we're coming out of the tumultuous 60s. We're into the malaise of the 70s. It's the, it's the, the, uh, we will start to move into the Jimmy Carter, um, the Jimmy Carter uh, high, uh, not taxation, but uh, inflation era. This is America kind of at its modern lowest, right? Right before the, the supposed... Uh, boom years of the Reagan era. And if you're looking at, you know, the middle class, there is a palpable fear. This movie spoke to that fear. It said, you know what? Sometimes a man has to just get a gun and shoot his way through, through the fear, through the nonsense. And that's what Death Wish is. Death Wish isn't so much a story as it is gonzo pornography it has elements that typically prop up a good story it has a character possibly two it uh it actually tries to get you to uh get to know some of the quote-unquote characters uh so that when you take them away violently off screen it, it evokes a reaction out of the audience it sure does try, at least. And I'll, and I'll get to that in a minute. But ultimately, 90% of this movie is a guy with a gun shooting random bad guys. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Robert and I, Robert Winfrey and I on, on Damn You Hollywood debated the merits of the revenge feature... Uh, with respect to Death Wish 2018. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. Go listen to that podcast when we're done here. But su- suffice to say, the revenge flick is is a motif that has been done zillions of times, some better than others. There are ways to do it in which uh, a revenge f- feature works well. And then there were some that are just badly done. And while I know that this is held in high esteem, especially for its time, you know, and before maybe this sort of thing was as 
often done as it is now in feature films. And and I know that there are people like some of our good friends of this network who laud the folk idealism of a guy, you know, taking the law into his own hands and shooting his way through the muck and mire of a city gone rotten. I get all that. And to a degree, I don't have a problem with it. But this is about examining a feature and debating its merits. And the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Death Wish is a poorly told story with almost no characters. I would, I would put out there that the, Paul Kersey, the Charles Bronson character, is barely a character unto himself, but at least there's an attempt there. Everything else is video game bad guy. Even the wife didn't even need to have a name. She was just the wife. She was an object to be destroyed as an impetus to push him into the street to do his thing. And if if you don't know what the term gonzo pornography is, see, like, there's some porn that has a story to it, kind of. You know, the pizza man shows up and he gives her the sausage, right? (laughs) This tale is old as time. <laughs> Gonzo pornography eliminates. Are, are we? Are wait, 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 wait. Are we going to be getting into dick swinging again? <laughs> no, 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 no. That was that was that was a couple of shows ago. <laughs> All right, objection withdrawn. Okay. Be no <laughs> dick swinging in Death Wish, mind you. Um, but Gonzo seeks to cut away the fat of a scene like that. It's just there's just sex. It's just scene after scene after scene of sex. Well, instead of sex. Let's do shooting. Scene after scene after scene of shooting that connects to nothing and is held by nothing but the flimsiest matter. Again, I don't want to do much of a comparison here, so I'm going to keep this a little vague, but go see the new Death Wish to kind of see where I'm coming from with this. Paul Kersey does not go into the street. He is not compelled to seek revenge on behalf of his destroyed wife and his abused child and mow his way through those that have wronged him because the system has failed. That's a story. Now, I I could be accused, maybe even by the defense, of being married to what one would call conventional narrative, but there's a reason why it's called conventional narrative. It's because it's, it's, it's a strong narrative that works. There's no narrative here. Man goes into street, shoots barely connected things, and then after a certain amount of time, the ref goes, we're done here, and the movie ends. That Death Wish could have been eight hours long. It could have been five minutes long. It, was, it would have been the same movie, no matter what, because all it is is Charles Bronson shooting nameless, faceless bad guys. Now, there, I, I will concede it's fun to see some of, our, uh, some of our fun actors show up in this thing as terrible muggers. Uh, the, the one that, the, one of the, uh, the, the African-American actor that was on Welcome Back, Cotter, that was a fun one. Jeff Goldblum, obviously, that's the best. Uh, but, uh, but that's it. Other than that, uh, th- there was nothing for me to really tap into here. 
Now, the defense will say, but, 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 there is a story. There's the whole thing with him in the police department. Okay, so let's, let's examine that, right? Again, he's not pursuing justice. He's reacting out of anger, and he's defending himself in, in, in positions he puts himself in. Okay, he's out walking the streets at night, uh, you know, and, and looking for trouble. So that's one thing. So then you have the police department, which uh, this is probably the most interesting part of the film, actually, is the investigation into him and what he's doing. There's a choice narratively that could have been made that would have made this stronger and that would have been to actually prosecute the guy and have the debate in the courtroom over whether or not what he was doing was just in a world with a system that was failing. But instead, he's not punished for murdering people. He's essentially held up as somewhat of a folk hero, but again, film, visual medium, they say it, but they don't really show it, that I recall. And again, if they did show it, it apparently didn't stick, so it wasn't done well enough. And then, like I said, they just, you know, like, we'll make you a deal. Get out of the city and we'll throw the gun away. Which, okay, that's stupid, but they did it. And then you could have at least saved the film by saying, you know, by having that moment of self-reflection for Charles Bronson going, well, I went too far. I was a man pushed to the limits. I I did a bad thing, but I will repent for my sins. Nope, he makes the gun shooty thing with his fingers at the end of the movie. So what have we learned here, children? Man goes into street, shoots a lot of guys, gets away with it scot-free. If I pitch that as a movie, I, I don't think anyone would make it. And I can see why the author of the, the original book was irritated by this film, because he's absolutely right. This celebrates vigilanteism for no other reason than violence is good. This isn't a re- redemption by revenge tale where he shoots, where he goes after the people who wronged his family. This is. Gonzo violence pornography for the sake of Gonzo violence pornography. Your witness, sir. Jet bears of the jury. To understand one of the things that makes this movie so compelling even now, you have to think about not only the time, but some of the people behind it. This was... Not the days of Showtime's Dexter, when character had to be fully spelled out and elaborated on in on-the-nose monologues. A lot of times, movies of this era kind of said what it needed to say and then left you to sort out and think about it for yourself and come to your own conclusions. It expected people to be independently minded. That is what Death Wish does. It doesn't hammer you over the head with necessarily an anti-violence message. But what it does is it delivers that in another kind of way. And it does it in some extremely interesting ways. Um, 
one of one of my favorite actors of that era, and in fact a contemporary of Charles Bronson's, was Lee Marvin. In one of his more famous interviews, I believe it was one that he conducted with Playboy, he discussed the violence that was inherent in so many of his roles. And he reasoned that the best possible way to keep people from wanting to emulate it is you take the violence and you make it so close to the brutal reality, so authentic, that no reasonable-minded average Joe would think about actually imitating it. The vast majority of people would take one look at it and say, nothing in me wants any part of that whatsoever. I believe that works, to be quite honest. And it's something that I like to believe Bronson himself believed in. Because you have to understand... He was, if we're to draw a comparison, he was uh, he was nothing like the contemporary stars of today who come from polished, very soft, intellectual back backgrounds. Uh, no, here was a guy who, after he graduated, who when he was when he was 10 years old and his father died uh, he went to work first in the office of the coal mines near where he grew up and then in the mines the, themselves earning a dollar for each eventually earning a dollar for each ton of coal that he mined uh, when he came of age he enlisted in the air force in 194 in 1943 and uh, serving in the 760th Flexible Gunnery Training Squadron. And then in 1945, he was a Boeing B-29 Superfortress aerial gunner with, out, with the 61st Bombardment Squadron out of Guam uh, within the 39th Bombardment Group. Uh, and in World War II, he conducted combat missions against Japan's home islands. Uh, 25 missions and received a Purple Heart for wounds received in battle. This was not a man who misunderstood the price of violence. And he's also a man who understood the toll that violence takes on an individual's mind. He portrayed it with subtlety. It wasn't a kind of manic overacting. He, he exuded a very kind of stoic masculinity about him. And such is the case, and such is the case here. You, you do see you do see a sense of loss, a sense of detachment in, in those cold eyes after his wife is murdered and his daughter, is is robbed of her mind after a horrific rape. It uh, it, it it's not an explosive rate 
outrage, though. He's he's a lost man. Is what he is what he really is. And what this movie portrays is the idea that once you start killing, it's hard at first and it's jarring, but sometimes for some people, it ends up becoming too easy. And past a certain point, you don't want to stop. Compare that against... Well, well for example... Compare that against a, a key moment in season five of of Arrow. Mark, if you haven't watched it, you might want to mute this part because I'm about to spoil something. No, I'm good. Go ahead. <laughs> um, in which Oliver Queen, under excruciating psychological and physical torture, finally just just admits what he later acknowledges is the absolute truth is that way back when once he once he started killing problem was he didn't want to stop he wanted to keep going he enjoyed it every time he killed a bad guy and that frightened him the problem is the unsettling thing about this movie is and again, I point out that it's it's subtle. You're left to come to this conclusion yourself. And that's what I enjoy so much about it. Is the fact that depending on your mindset, there are some people who will watch this and who will actually and who will actually be kind of fascinated by the fact, yeah, okay, he he kind of got uh, a symbolic, a pyrrhic sort of revenge. But at the same time, wow, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of horrified that that he doesn't want to stop. That he just wants to keep right on going. He he apparently just wants to move to another city and just pick up right where right where he left off. Is this what taking a life can actually do to some people? Man, I want no part of that. They took the violence and they made it so brutal that a reasonable-minded average person would want absolutely nothing to do with it. But again, as the prosecution pointed out, this was something that was spawned by a transitional period in American history. The tumult of the 60s had given away to the malaise of the 70s. That's true. America was at its lowest. That's also, that's also true. It's not a story so much as gonzo porn. Yeah, no. No, we, we, we weren't beaten upside the head with raw emotion, with, with Marlon Brando screaming, Stella! at the top of his lungs. And yes, 90% of the action that takes place is... A guy with a gun shooting, ran, shooting random bad guys. But here's the thing about that. In a way, isn't that kind of saying something about Paul Kersey himself as well? By the end of the movie, isn't it saying that it started off as a crusade that was 
set alight by the death of his wife and the rape of his daughter. But now you almost kind of look into his eyes and you wonder, does he even care about why he started doing it in the first place? Is that even crossing his mind any anymore? The lights are on, but is there still even anybody home up there? It isn't a poorly told story. It's a subtly told story that tells just enough to let you come to your own conclusions. It doesn't have to be two and a half hours of everything being long and drawn out because what it wants to focus on is it wants to focus not so much on the courtroom consequences, but it focuses strictly and narrowly on his personal descent and his and how this cha- and how this changes him in a very dark way. It shows more than it chooses to tell. It's a story that doesn't really that doesn't really need monologuing. It simply doesn't because what you have is you have someone with Bronson's kind of kind of quiet but very solid presence. So much so that he can convey plenty with body language, just with the way that the way that he holds himself. You know, it it isn't Daniel Day Lewis, but the, but there's a kind of brilliance in his own acting. And again, it's it's from somebody that had some experience with some of the most grisly firsthand vi- hand violence the world has the world has ever known. A man who went to World War II, so I'm sure he had a mind for the idea of well, somebody's been through this and just taken a life for the first time no how they're thinking it happens isn't always quite how it works sometimes it's sometimes it's a, it's a little more subtle than that it's a little more it's a little more unassuming a transformation that that just kind of happens almost almost without the the individual realizing it so i think the key to this movie is as much as you trust in the source material you also have to trust in the man who is charged with portraying the evolution of this character and what he brought to it and the idea that he was able to find a sort of kinsmanship with Paul Kersey through his own experiences and by thinking about the world that he, that he now lived in. Because really, he is what, carry, he is what carries the movie with his with his performance. And so that quite frankly is all I need to say about why this should continue to be upheld as a modern classic. The floor is yours. Uh my only point that I want to uh put out there is well, I think the defense puts forth a solid case, you know, for subtlety in movies, and I, I am reminded of 
Robert and I constantly lamenting the fact that you can't make the deer hunter in 2018. No one will sit for it. You know, dog day afternoon, people would walk out. And while I, I, I am not holding up the argument that it's a boring movie, um, I was not bored, and, and I, I was not bored personally, and I don't think, uh, I don't think this is a movie that um, doesn't have its gripping scenes to keep people invested. But I will say this. As I was listening to the defense, and he was talking about you know the subtlety and the acting and everything, I I just kept thinking, maybe my problem with this movie is in in a vacuum in in the time that it came out, all of what was said is true, but I think you know much like there's an argument that goes something like this you know you can never there'll never be another Beatles, okay well the counter argument to that is. There are better bands that have come along ever since the Beatles. The Beatles were a thing in a certain time, in a certain place, and they had a certain impact. But there's no way in God's green earth that's the best band in the history of modern rock music, or music in general. No way. There are better bands that have come along since. There are bands that did the exact same thing the Beatles did, and did it better. And that is how I want to conclude my prosecution of Death Wish. My best compliment towards Death Wish is it's a fine start for a revenge film, but there are those who have done it better that gave more gravity to the character going through those issues, that gave more gravity to the argument being had. The argument was made more coherently and more cogently. And I think, you know, again... If you want to sit down on a Sunday afternoon and watch a guy shoot up Manhattan, you, you wouldn't do worse uh, by sitting down and watching Death Wish. But there are better, more intelligent movies dealing with the same subject to be had, and I would steer you towards them. The prosecution rests. All right, so let me tell you what I really thought of the movie. Um <laughs> You know, I, 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 that's why I said like I really couldn't argue with a lot of what you were saying because I got all that. Um, mm-hmm. I think, and this is the argument Robert and I got into on Tuesday, which I don't want to rehash here, but I just, I, I guess I, I thought he would be dealing directly with the tragedy that befell his family. I felt like this was too indirect. You know, like this was a guy lashing out. Um, and, you know... <sighs> I just wanted more. I, I felt like we would get glimpses of what the, of what they were trying to say, and a lot of what you know you direct, you you were putting putting out there as well. No, it, it's subtlety. It's subtlety, uh, and I, I just I wanted more of. I wanted more. You know, I I understand what they were going for, but I it left me a little cold. Not to say that I wasn't entertained. Because, you know, who isn't entertained by a guy shooting muggers? Especially when the muggers are as fun as the ones in this film. And boy, were they ever. The muggers in this are great. They're the best part of the movie for me. You know, it's just... <laughs> Give me the money, baby! You know, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> what, a, what a time the 70s were. <laughs> God, I was born way too late. Um, but... You know Jeff Goldblum ju- just chewing up scenery in, in in that in that horrible scene as as 
jarring as it is, he's hilarious. He's so mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblumy. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> so cinematically, it's all very entertaining. But I, but, but I think on a subject as seriousness as serious as taking the law into your own hands, you know, vigilanteism. What, you know, whether or not a man has the right to shoot another man under the, under certain circumstances. I needed a little bit more. I needed a little bit more of the conversation. I needed a little more of the psychology of all of that to have affected our main character. You call it subtle. I called it um, barely affected. At least that's how it came across to me. I could, I could see that, but again, and this is something I've said on many podcasts before when we've talked about movies from around this era. There's something when it comes to the action genre that I will always believe was lost forever when the stars who were born in a time of when uh, when the draft when the draft was in was in effect and uh, a lot of young men did end up either enlisting or being drafted to go over and serve and do and do their duty to their country when they were kind of aged out of those roles because there's something extremely true about what Lee Marvin said and that is that action back then wasn't nearly as flashy it was gritty it was bone crunching and it was because it was made by people who understood it. It was made by people who who had actually taken a punch, fired a gun, been shot, maybe shot some maybe shot somebody, something like that. And so they it, it, it's not like you have to go and have Jeremy Henner and Matt Damon and whoever uh go and and tag along with with a veteran so they can learn so they can learn what uh, the, the the mindset of a soldier they didn't need to think about that they knew it, it was it wasn't a stretch um, and with Bronson there you've got a real a real hard scrabble blue collar guy like I said had been making a living working for a coal mine since he was 10 years old and that authenticity gave the movie something different it's not like nowadays when you watch somebody like like for example you watch uh, Keanu Reeves in uh, in the Matrix and you just make it look so cool and so visual and so visually stunning and so flashy that of course you get some people who some people who might go out there and try to imitate it or 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 any or any other action movie i mean it it's not something that thankfully has happened much i think because of, i think because of movies but at the same time it's also a connection to the realism of depicting violence that 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 has been that that's gone and that is probably not coming not coming back 
because if you were to boil it down to, uh, if, if you'll pardon the re- the reference, uh, the realest guys in the room nowadays who are truly most convincing in those kinds of roles, you get down to guys like Jason Statham, Sean Bean, Daniel Craig, Hugh Jackman, uh, Dwayne Johnson. And really, if, if you wanted to boil it down, it's kind of like an interview I once heard about uh, the glory days of professional wrestling when Jake Roberts once said, look, if you were to take wrestling and boil it down to who were the, only, who were the real tough guys, the only guys you'd have left would be Jim Duggan and Haku. <laughs> Nowadays, if you were to pare it down to only the guys where you go, no, it's not an act. This person probably really could seriously kick my or just about anybody else's ass. That's what makes us totally believable. Like I said, uh, you at a certain point would get down to just to just the guys, the guys that I mentioned. And Hugh Jackman is such a nice guy. Um, <laughs> um, he, he's believable in in physique and every and everything and physicality, but in terms of his demeanor, no, the, the the guy is about as far removed from from Wolverine as you're pretty mu- as you're pretty much going to get. So uh, for for the real the real serious guys, you get down to guys like uh, okay Vin Diesel. I would throw Vin Diesel in there as another one with the air of a very legit toughness about him. So there, okay, I could I could pare it down to probably uh, Daniel Craig, Jason Statham, Vin Diesel, and Dwayne Johnson. Because um, you don't have guys like a Clint Eastwood, a Lee Marvin, a, um, a Charles Bronson, a Steve McQueen nowadays. Uh, not, not even really a Bruce Lee. So that's I mean I mean do you not think that's probably why Death Wish was a little bit different back then was just because it was a it was a different breed of actor that you could slot into a role like that? Yeah, I mean I I and it was funny. There were two movies that I was thinking about as you were talking. One was Commando. Now, I'm not saying Commando, you know, is necessarily in the same genre as Death Wish. Um, I mean, to a de- to a degree, it is essentially he's, you know, people have kidnapped his daughter and he takes a machine gun into the woods and goes and gets her, but mm-hmm. you know, but that had all the subtlety of a brick to the face. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, but it was also a, more of an action adventure than it was a noir r- exactly. revenge tale. Exactly. But the other movie I was thinking about because I kept. Um, this isn't my my most eloquent argument t- tonight. I, I was somewhat struggling with words. Uh, but the movie that... When I say I wanted more, this might throw you for a loop, but the movie I was thinking about was Falling Down. Michael Douglas does a great job... Okay. ...of conveying through the screen a man at the end of his rope. A man willing to abandon his... Uh, upper uh, mid middle class or uh, upper middle class life to get a bazooka and start shooting it at people. Yeah, but it's but for one thing, that's two shades of 
of a color on the same palette. But but they're di- but they're very disparate shades. It's like comparing hunter green to to lime green. Okay, but that, but isn't comparing falling? I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're you're agreeing that falling down in death wish is a like, well, like comparison. Well, sort of, uh, kind of. Um, I would say, I would say it's almost like comparing lemons to limes. Or, or maybe, or maybe no. Rather, no. It's more like comparing oranges to lemons, because you have two different depictions of the same kind of descent, but they end up falling on on the opposite sides on opposite sides of that canyon. With Bronson, it's a case. With Paul Kersey, it's a case wherein it it isn't explosive. It it it, it is subtle. He just kind of gently slips in slips in to that to that pursuit of vengeance. It's a it, it's something that's that's quiet. It doesn't happen all in one spectacular flourish. No, but I, I, and, I looked at Bronson's portrayal and I just feel like he never really embraces the monster that he's become or even recognizes that he's become one. He, well, vomits, he vomits but, once. But but that's what I'm getting at. They're different kinds of monsters. They're, they're different kinds. Bronson vomit, vomits once, but then he finds he wants to, he wants to keep going. With, because different personalities do snap in, in different ways. Sometimes it's someone who just who who just starts a pattern like like Kersey does, and it's it's a quiet kind it's a quiet kind of fall. But then you have somebody who really does just decide to completely lose it and just completely just go up in one enormous bonfire of rage at everything that they've been that they've been forced to endure like Michael Douglas does. And I think I think there's validity in the plausibility of both. It, it may be a matter let, let, let's let's call it here. It may be also a matter of personal taste. Mm-hmm. When I when I when I compare uh Bronson's monster that he becomes to Michael Douglas's monster and falling down, I Which is also a good movie. Uh, I'm not. I'm not knocking falling okay. down. I love. It. I lo- falling down is probably in my my top fifty by far. Um, I love that movie, but I I got a sense of the psychological snapping with Michael Douglas, and it's not like he's running around you know screaming on screen, but like he you you do get a sense of crazy eyes in his performance. You do get a sense that th- th- this man has turned off all the lights in his mind, and is mm-hmm. you know, and something that was inside him that was deep and buried under layers and layers of humanity and society has you know, all those layers have cracked away, and out comes this monster, and and he's not strong enough to keep it in check, ah, and he just think, lets it go. But I think you just I think you just nailed what the difference is there between them, though. Mm-hmm. With Michael Douglas's character, it's something that was buried in him. With Kersey, he becomes 
something that that it, it wasn't latent. It wasn't something that he that he had ever been curious about. It's in Michael Douglas's case, it was more of an awakening, of an unleashing. In Kersey's case, it was more of it. It was more of a sudden shift, and an almost instantaneous personal metamorphosis. Yeah, I'll give you a comparison. Just, 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 just brought, just, but it, but it's one that was just brought about by by one decision, by by one point when he could have gone one way. And he could have gone the other. It's not like things had just been had just been mounting mm-hmm. necessarily for for years on end, kind of like they apparently had been for Michael Douglas's character. And then all of a sudden, they just exploded. It's more of a case of you know he he came to that point that point in the flowchart when he found when he found the gun, he decided to go one way, and he had kind of no idea how that moment was going to rewrite him. Now, now gonna, what's, your, what's your comparison? I was going to say, I, and, and this tells you more about me than it does anything else. I think in the case of Michael Douglas versus Charles Bronson, um, Michael Douglas is the Hulk and Charles Bronson is Iron Man. One, ha- one has a raging yeah. beast inside uh-huh. of him and the other, one put on, the other one put on a weapon and went into the streets to, you know, to, to use that weapon. Um... You know, it, it's fine. I'm actually curious now about the rest of the sequels. I hear that they, they run the gamut of shit to okay, but there was one that uh, a coworker of mine was telling about. Where at the end, you know, it's very unsettling. I don't want to give it away if you haven't, if anyone hasn't seen it. But uh, he was telling me about it, and I actually thought that was the end of this one. Um, but there, there's one where, like I said, there's a very unsettling ending that I'm curious about. So I'll probably at some point, especially because they're like five bucks on iTunes. Uh, to buy them, I'll probably work my way through the series. That's at some point. That, that, that's that's about six bucks too much. <laughs> um, <laughs> got a, got a question for you. We and you know and and I know you and I know among you and Ronnie Adams just love when I schedule years ahead of time. But <laughs> <laughs> this is what you live for. Um, that's why you keep doing shows with me. Bring uh, it, Sensei of scheduling. Uh, next year is John Wick three. Um, okay. We don't do Long Road to Ruin anymore, but at some point I need a reason to watch the first two movies before I, before I see that one. Uh, so either we need to put at least one of the John Wicks on, on trial or uh, maybe do a, uh, a special, I don't know, either a special Long Road to Ruin to watch both of them or just do one of them on trial or do both you know, over the course of you a know, few weeks. You know what, Mark? Want to do it. You know something? What's that mean, Gene? Let me tell you something, Gene Mean. Um, I've been giving this some thought lately. It's funny you bring up Long Road to Ruin. You know, when we ended it, um, I'm not going to go into it on air because you know just why it's so personal. You kind of know now where I was personally Uh at the time. Sure. I was too exhausted to keep going with it. And at the time, I was even hiding from you just kind of what was going on. Um, I feel like we've had enough time away from it now. I don't want to do away with on trial. I want to keep on trial going. 
I think... I hope so. I started scheduling 19, uh, 2019 already. <laughs> because, of course, you have. <laughs> but, especially now that we have Spreaker, we don't have to do it every two weeks like we did before. That was exhausting. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> we we got away with that for a little for a little while when Sean was pants on head nanners. <laughs> I am no the pants have come off my head. I'm wearing the pants now. Lost a lot of weight and they fit again. I think it's time we maybe bring that back on a monthly basis. All right. So May twentieth of 2019, Long Road to Ruin, uh, John Wick 1 and 2. I'm putting it on the calendar. And I say we make that the official relaunch of the series in which we kind of... Because think of how many franchises have kind of kept going since then. How many franchises we never got to touch. Maybe we could maybe we could even revisit a few of them. I mean, we can kind of make it almost like Almost like, lo- like, I don't know, Long Road to Ruin, the remake. It's something uh, we can batter on. I definitely want to do the, the John Wicks. Um, it, it, it calls to me. It says, no, you need to watch both movies. Or you need to review them with Sean and then go see John Wick 3. Um, and, by, and by the way, uh, huh, if, you're li- if you happen to be listening to this, hey, Ben... <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're not do we're not doing this without you. Yeah, you have a year and two months to get a John Wick title card going. <laughs> um, yeah, there's plenty of stuff that I think we that I think we can have fun with. I'm in a better place now. Um, we're no longer quite so burned out. We're having we're having fun doing on trial. Yep. And, and I want to keep do and I want to keep doing that. You know, I've got it to one or two a month. Um, I've got them set to certain um, franchises that uh, that Daniel Hollywood's doing. But I th- but I think what this conversation tells me is that we don't have to be locked into doing only one thing. If something comes up and I go, hey, this th- on trial synergizes with this better than Long Road to Ruin does. Long Road to Ruin synergizes with that more though you know more so than blah blah yakety schmackety then we have the option of flipping them around yeah yeah Done. but okay. but yeah you 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 absolutely nailed it no we we are we are never again doing two long road to ruins per month yeah <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just not that crazy anymore i don't have the time i work five days a week now and and you have and you have two kids yeah and occasionally um, yeah. My, i like to hang out with my wife yeah um, you yeah, you you have t- you have two kids. I'm doing I'm doing a two hour Twitch stream on an almost daily basis and contributing to at least three different blogs. <laughs> All right. So with that said, um, let's get into plugs. So next week uh, we've got uh, a little Jessica Jones, a little of this, a little of that, a little uh, Batman's head in a lance. Um, so we've got source material on Monday, Volume One, Uncaged, Jessica Jones, uh, the Winter, uh, the <laughs> uh, what do you call it? Uh, Robert Winfrey's Winter of Discontent continues with Damn You Hollywood, A Wrinkle in Time, uh, Metal Hammer of Doom will review Ministry, America c- 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 Can't, 
And finally, uh, I will have at least Robert Winfrey, but probably a, whole, a, a gang of millions uh, on to talk about Jessica Jones Season 2. Uh, the following week, it's all Tomb Raider all the time, kind of, sort of. Uh, we've got Tomb Raider Volume 1 on Source Material, Season of DeWitch. Uh, we'll be re- reviewing the new Tomb Raider reboot on Damn You Hollywood. Um, we'll be reviewing the new Judas Priest, Firepower, on the Metal Hammer of the Doom. And then uh, Sean and I are back for our second on-trial of the month. <laughs> Speaking of franchises, we're not doing the whole thing. We're just doing one of them. The, the, we're doing the really silly one. Uh, Lara, Croft, Tomb Ra- Lara Croft, Tomb Raider 2, Cradle, uh, Cradle of Life. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the not good Tomb Raider. Uh, if you're looking for more on-trials, uh, we will be doing another one on April 5th. We will be doing Tron. Um, and that is it for the month of April. Uh, in May, May 8th, this, this is the ever-moving show, by the way. I've moved it like three times. Uh, we will be doing on-trial Battleship. And then um, it's the summer of Sean. Sean, Sean gets to pick a, one, a, a show for June 5th. He gets to pick... Um, July is filled up right now. Uh, he gets to pick uh, August 14th and... Hang on, I'm actually writing these dates down. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. August 14th and June 5th. Uh, he gets to pick those shows. Anything he wants, we're going to do. Uh, so let's see if he'll torture me like Robert Winfrey wants to torture me. <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see what happens. Oh, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't call it torture. I think that. I think my idea is I kind of want to take explicitly uh, movies that were major critical darlings, mm-hmm. and kind and kind of have fun with really with really dissecting those. Sounds just like what I had in mind. Because show. well, because I mean. Look, look at the debate that that comes up every single year around the Oscars. And the same thing that so many people com- have complained about for years. And it is all these movies sweep up all the same nominations. And with few exceptions, I challenge you to find a dozen people you know who have seen most of them. And that's even despite the fact that we've now expanded the Best Picture category from about I think five or about five movies once upon a time to now something like 50 <laughs> I mean the because the the Oscars are no longer about the best movies that people actually went to see um and which is amazing considering that considering that the movie industry in film, it is so rooted in audience support. Right. Um, and yet you had people who were... I mean, this year was an exception. Obviously, a lot of people went to... I mean, Get Out was also a huge commercial success. Enormous success. Uh, as was as was Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. But you also had people had people going 
Logan only got one nomination? Really? <laughs> Wonder Woman got shut out entirely? Really? Yeah, well, those were also cases where people... You know, it was like if a comic book movie is in any way artistically done, you know, or, you know, competently uh, filmed, people are like, it needs an Oscar. It's like, all right, settle down. I know, I understand you're comparing it to Rise of the Silver Surfer, but settle the fuck down. <laughs> um, you know, and Wonder Woman also, you know, had people getting behind it because of, of gender politics, which is, is A, an argument I've already gotten into, B, an argument I don't want to get into now, and C... <laughs> Wonder Woman was fine except for the third act. Let's not get crazy. Um, well, and 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 I had my I had my issues with Wonder Woman as well, but um but the thing is my feeling is that Hollywood too often will uh, completely shun something from awards consideration and and the real prestige tier just because, meh, it's a genre movie. Like, somehow that precludes it from actually being good and artistically groundbreaking and worthy and having something something actually to say. And what Wonder Woman did well, it did well as... And, you know, just like, just like Logan did as well. They both did well as movies that turned a genre on their head... It kind of gave us something that some things that we hadn't seen much of before. The movies I want to tackle for this are ones where they were best they were best picture, they were huge, they were acclaimed at the time, but how do they hold up today? Um, oh, like, like, I mean, I'm really curious to see what you'll end up going with. Okay, um, okay, uh, let me let me throw one of them out here right now. Then, oh, okay. August fourth, August fourteenth. Let's do Dances with Wolves. Cool. I've never actually seen that one, but it's on the list of things I wanted to see. Uh, okay. Then. Um, then you said, and then you said June fifth was my other date. Yeah, hang on. Let me put that in there. On trial. We're, we're seriously doing two summer shows. Dances with Wolves. And I'll figure out who's defending and who's prosecuting later. Um. So yeah, we're doing one for we're doing one in August. Is on trial. And then um, with the with Luke Cage launching when it is, and the amount of summer movies I got to do on okay, maybe fair Hollywood. enough. I understand. Yeah, I okay then. Um, the June fifth. Then June fifth. Yes, I got one for you. I propose we take the on trial formula and skew it just ever so slightly to tackle a historic best picture race. Okay. Okay. Because one year, you had three of the greatest movies of all time going up against each other. And some people have wondered whether the right movie really won, looking at how they've held up in hindsight. I propose we pit movie against movie. And since it's the summer of Sean, I get to pick which of the movies I'm going to be, I'm going to be defending as my client. You, Mark Radlich, will be defending Best Picture winner and arguably one of Tom Hanks' finest hours, I must admit, Forrest Gump. I love Forrest Gump. Okay. And in my case, I will be defending a movie 
that tugs at my heartstrings every time I see it because it holds a deep personal significance for me. Showgirls? It is... <laughs> it is my favorite movie of all time. The Shawshank Redemption. Oh, that's a good one. The Shawshank Redemption. Gump versus Shawshank. All right, and I am defending Forrest Gump. All right, we got it. The Summer of Sean. And, 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 I, and I will tell you. I will tell you right now. I do not hate Forrest Gump. Just to be clear on that, I I love that. It's a it's a great movie. But there's being great. And then there's being named best picture against what is rightfully considered in just about every way one of the greatest movies ever made. I like it. Yep. All right. What do you got going on in your world and where can they find you, sir? Uh, let's see. Uh, remind me again. What did I say we were doing on August 14th? Uh, did I say we were doing dance, on August 14th? Dances with oh, Wolves. Oh, yeah. Dances with Wolves. Okay. I forgot to write my own choice down. Huh, that one will be fun. I'm not. I'm definitely not going to be telling uh, telling my biological dad which movie I'm doing. That's one of his favorites of all time. And <laughs> personally, I, I will I will gladly prosecute that one. <laughs> okay, I will. I'll just put it on there that I'm defending it. Yeah, <laughs> that overlong piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, terrific. <laughs> Um, anyway, as far as my own plugs, <laughs> first off, thank you everybody for downloading. We greatly appreciate the support, um, especially now that we are on this magnificent new platform. I love Spreaker so much. Um, if Spreaker, if Spreaker were a grown up human, I would ask for it to adopt me. Um, mostly because it rescued us from blog talk, <laughs> but as far as where you can find me the rest of the time, I occasionally write video game reviews over at W2Mnet.com. As of this writing, my most recent ones were I reviewed Thomas Brush's side-scrolling platform, indie side-scrolling, uh, indie side-scrolling platformer, Pinstripe, and the retro 16-bit shoot-'em-up Mercenary Kings Reloaded, both for the PlayStation 4. Uh, I also write about wrestling over at thechairshot.com. In fact, I write a little column called 8-Match Tag. It is a weekly octet of choice cuts from the WWE Network Library designed to tantalize well-read wrestling fans and provide a little bit of an education to newbies. Uh, meanwhile, about once, sometimes twice a month, I also provide live recapping and reviews of WWE Network pay-per-views over at fpgnews.com. I have a little column titled Comer Codex Live. Why? Simple, you schmuck. Branding. Because uh, almost any given night of the week, most of the time, except for um, uh, up until about March 17, because I'm going to be on hiatus for a short while, you can find me over at twitch.tv slash comercodex almost every night of the week from about 6 p.m. Central Time. 
I play right now. I am on a quest to burn through a combination of some current games and a massive, about sixty to hundred game long PS3 and PS4 backlog. Uh, I, if you want to come in, chat, heckle me while I'm playing. Actually, no, don't heckle me because I'll banhammer your ass. Um, but swing by, cheer me on. Uh, just chat bullshit with other people while I'm playing do whatever I love streaming I love having a big crowd I love having a conversation to follow along with uh, most recently we are currently playing the evil within except for Saturday night when we divert to a multiplayer stream wherein we play usually a combination of smite and paladins with my good friend and yours Cole Marantet the film twit and Whoever else I can pull into a five-person party that night. <laughs> Just depends on whoever, on whoever's available. And for updates on all of the above, follow me on Twitter, at Comer Codex, where you can leave your love, hate, and respectful disagreements. So, until court is in session again, I'm Sean, you're not. Never dull your colors for someone else's canvas, and have a great evening. All right. Uh, all rise. This has been on trial on the Rattles and Broadcasting Network on Spreaker. For Sean Comer, I am your mandated reporter and frankly unmodified Mr. Mark Rattledge. Till the next time, be well, be safe, and behave. presents an evening with the progressive box oh what a great audience let's dim the lights for this next one nope too much ah there it is gotta get things just right like progressives name your price tool tell us what you want to pay and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget and now the mood is right wait the lights are back on again trudy can you and now it's completely dark Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a scary movie victim. Oh no, a tree fell on my car. And there's only one thing to do. Trip over my own feet and pull myself across the lawn while yelling help at a barely audible volume. Help. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but you filed a claim with GEICO, so you've got a designated claims team to help you. This GEICO sounds suspiciously reassuring. Are you sure I don't end up getting surprised with an unexpected twist? Just that your GEICO team will always be there to keep you updated. No! What is it? Oh, nothing. I just didn't see that coming. Geico. Great service without all the drama. It's finally time to start firing up the grill. From city to shore, Acme is everything you need to prep for this summer season. Download the Acme app, the shop for this season's essentials, any way you want. Open the Acme app, clip your deals, then order your items online. An experienced Acme associate will carefully select your groceries, bag your order, and bring it right to your car or deliver right to your door. Download the app or visit acmemarkets.com for program details.